all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, and uh, just uh, a little bit different with not much music this morning, so it's just got me absolutely a little different to do that intro. This is the Southern Remedy program where you can call in with anything and everything related to the health of yourself or someone else in your family. If you've got a new symptom, if you've got a new medication, whatever it is that you want to call in, now is the time to do that. I give you full permission to be our first or second or even fourth caller of the hour. We do know that some people uh, are listening but unable to call, so we do want to give you the opportunity to to voice your question because we'd love to answer that directly, but also to share that with our listening audience. Um, If you give us permission to do that, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Got an early caller this morning, so Betty from Pearl gets our our award for being the first person. Good morning, Betty. What's your uh, question this morning? Good morning. What do I win? You win the dubious distinction of the day. I think that's that is our that's on our budget here at MPB Studios. So yes, there is oh, raucous applause uh, by multiple people right now that I can see and hear uh, that, that you probably can't. So okay, all right. Well, I have a question. I'll, I'll try to make it as clear and fast as I can. Um, last year, I had a scope on my esophagus and stomach. And it because I was having problems swallowing, which turned out to be that I have a hernia and also some acid reflux, which is all generic. All the women in my salon have had it. And I was given a drug called, I'm going to spell it, O-M-E-P-R-A-Z-O-L-E. Omeprazole, right. Yeah, 40 milligrams. Okay. That was supposed to help with the acid reflux. So I started taking it, and I started looking at the side effects, and it says that it can cause your bones to be brittle. So I told my nurse practitioner, I go to the VA, and told her about it, and I had a bone scan done at the VA. Well, it turns out that I have the onset of osteoporosis, not maybe because of the drug, but probably that alongside with genetics. So I was giving the drug A-L-E-N-D-R-O-N-A-T-E. Uh-huh, alendronate. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the thing is that I take that once a week, and y'all were talking about this last week, and I couldn't call you, but it seems like when I take the one for my stomach and esophagus, 
it's defeating the purpose. The, the other drug that they gave me from my bones is defeating the purpose of the, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, it's like a catch-22. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you correctly, so the alendronate that you're taking for the for the osteoporosis, is that causing symptoms of the reflux and stomach upset when you take it? No, no. Okay. No, okay. I take it thirty I take it once a week, thirty minutes before I eat anything yeah. with no other drugs on it. Yeah. But I think I, I know what you're saying with you know, if if we're given one medication that may be contributing to bone loss and then we're having to take another medication to reverse that process, that's sort of a quandary, right? That is. And I'm taking also the the calcium and the vitamin D. Good, good, because I was going to ask about that too. Yeah, so the risk with the uh, proton pump inhibitors, so that's omeprazole is in that drug class of proton pump inhibitors, very effective medications that work a little bit differently uh, than the things like Pepsid, uh, which is, you know, and they, they are over-the-counter, too. You know, a, a Nexium, Omeprazole, those kinds of things are, uh, some of those are over-the-counter. Just at a little bit decreased dose than what you're taking. But they're very effective with reducing the amount of acid in the stomach and can heal up uh, gastritis or even gastric ulcers. So they are a very good medication to have. But, you know, like all medications, they do have side effects. Now, the side effect of osteoporosis is really not one, you know, if you're having to take it for, say, even four to six weeks, um, that's not a big risk in developing osteoporosis. So I think I I agree with you. You probably had some of that already. Um, But I do run into this problem with some of my patients when you get to the point where there is one diagnosis that you need to address and treat, um, with the gastroesophageal reflux. But then w- what do you do if they have other problems like osteoporosis? And there's a couple of different options. One is to treat for a limited amount of time with the omeprazole and then come off of it and then see if you develop symptoms again. Um, if you don't, that's great. You stay off of that. You treat the osteoporosis And osteoporosis is much more of a long-term process, so it's not something that changes rapidly. In fact, even taking the alendronate, you know, a lot of people will come back and say, hey, can we recheck my bone density? It's been two months. Um, It's really more of a one- to two-year process that it just doesn't work that quickly, the the bone uh, halting that bone loss or regaining bone is is a long-term process. Even naturally, right. even naturally, if you're doing, you know, weight-bearing exercise and vitamin D and and, um, and calcium. But um, that's one option is to is to stop it after four to six weeks, see if you regain symptoms. If you do regain symptoms, there may be some other alternative medications that you can take. So sometimes mm-hmm. patients, after getting that more intensive proton pump inhibitor, i.e. omeprazole, can then switch over to something that maybe works similarly, but maybe not quite as well, but it might work at that point for their symptoms. So like, then you could try maybe over-the-counter Pepsid. And Pepsid is not, that's not a side effect of the H2 blockers of Pepsid uh, is, you know, with the bone loss. So that would be one that you could treat the symptoms after that period of time and then come back on the, on the Pepsid, uh, you know, and hopefully not have that. 
But there are there are certain instances where you have to do both. Um, I have some patients that have changes in their lower esophagus that are sort of precancerous because of constant um, exposure to increased acid from their stomach. And the only thing that works is a proton pump inhibitor, and they also have osteoporosis. If they're taking both of those medications, the alendronate is a much more powerful medication to prevent um, osteoporosis and treat it um, than taking the omeprazole. Did that make sense? I feel like I was sort of went around the, the world with that. but Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I've been taking um, the one for my... Uh, stomach and esophagus for over a year now. Oh, okay. I'm supposed to have another appointment. Yeah, he didn't say six months. He said to take it every day, but I've been taking it every other day, and I'm supposed to be having another appointment with him sometime this year. And uh, but anyway, uh, I did call about it, and the doctor said, "Well, if you quit taking it, your symptoms will come back." So that's yeah, I mean. Everybody's different. Even if you have a hernia, which is you know an anatomical change there, that's not gonna not gonna get better over time, um, and it does contribute to your esophagus being exposed to the lower amounts of, I mean, the the amounts of acid that are normally in your stomach. I would. It's worth a shot just to see if you can come off of it. And anytime I can de-escalate a patient on what they're taking, I give it a shot. And if you don't, and it comes back. You either get back on it, stay on the alendronate, which you're going to have to treat the osteoporosis anyway, um, or you might can try the Pepsid, which wouldn't have that side effect. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Jimmy. Yeah, absolutely. We do run into those problems sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm chasing side effects of different medications and sort of balancing those out. Um, But you just got to sort of be creative with doing it and – just sort of weigh the risk and benefits because I have a lot of people say, you know what, I don't care if, I'm, if I have osteoporosis. I hate the reflux and I can't function when I have it. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. We'll stay on it. But that, that because of that, that side effect and a couple of others, most of the time we'll just treat for like four to six weeks. So that's just uh, something to think about. But it's definitely in other conditions. The other one that comes to mind is I'll have some um, – uh, adolescent and young adults who are being treated with stimulant medications for their um, attention deficit disorder, and they absolutely have to have it. I mean, they, they're not able to function. They've tried all the other things to try to, you know, to do well, either in the classroom or in their work environment, and it's just something that they you know, do so much better on, but they may be hypertensive when they're on it. Well, I can treat hypertension with the medication, and it is sort of a bummer to have two medications where you're sort of treating sort of a side effect of the of one with another medication. But it does happen, and if you think about it, it's a lot more common than people realize. A lot of the medications that we give for side effects, like methotrexate, is a medication that is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, and it's pretty effective in a lot of cases, uh, but it can cause depletion of folate in your body. So taking a supplement of folate uh, is something that you normally do if you're on regular methotrexate uh, weekly or whatever the regimen is, and that's to help prevent that folate depletion so that you don't have 
all of the the problems with decreased folate levels in your body. So it is more common than you think about that. And uh, there's leucovorin is another one that's also used. So we did it's a, it happens a lot with chemotherapy, but it's also in a lot of other situations too, where we we know, hey, we're going to start this medication, but we need to start something else. Um, Steroids is another one. So chronic steroids um, in patients, if they require it for long periods of time, we will often choose a medication like omeprazole to help counter some of those chronic effects, particularly on the gastric uh, mucosa and some of the reflux-related symptoms. So just something to think about. It is sort of complex. You need to be creative sometimes. But anytime you can de-escalate something and go to something that has less side effects or to come off of it completely, then I'm all for that. I, I would advocate that in, in any of my patients. The common email question we get from time to time tends to be seasonal is, hey, what kind of vaccines do I need to be getting right now? And that could be a complex question depending on your age and what time of the year it is. This time of the year, um, certainly we see flu and a lot of flu out there already, even though it's been hot here in the south and we don't have much rain in a lot of places uh, that's not something that, uh, you know, I can remember the days when it was like clockwork. RSV and flu came with the fair in Mississippi, with the Mississippi State Fair. And we got all kinds of crazy patterns of travel now. And uh, it sort of has has uh, exposure at different times of the year has uh, brought up a lot of things at different times. So flu vaccines are out and available right now. And I would highly recommend that you get that, particularly if you're at risk for getting the flu. But certainly anybody can uh, can uh, can get one of those. And uh, those are, of course, matched to the um to the uh, particular flu strains that they see. And also, speaking of other vaccines that are matched up to that, the new COVID vaccines are out, which are matched to some of the most common variants that we're seeing right now. Also seeing a lot of that in the community. So um, I would recommend uh, to all my patients that those are two vaccines that, uh, you know, that, that need to be uh, considered um, to help protect you against both those things. We'll say that, you know, most of the COVID cases that we've seen uh, and that I've seen personally um, have been milder than in the past, but still uh, a lot, particularly in those who are at risk. So the elderly, uh, those who have chronic medical conditions where their immune system's not working quite up to par, especially for those groups, I would recommend uh, vaccination with the new uh, COVID vaccines. We're going to go to Rick from Starkville. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Uh, just wondering about uh, Protonics. I think it's 40 milligram. Uh, what about the ups and downs of that for a long term? Yeah, Protonics is in that same class that we were talking about earlier. I don't know if you heard that conversation. That's sort of what, what sparked you to ask this question. But, yeah, Protonics is a, a different – it's pantoprazole is the generic name of that. Anything that sort of sound, you know, you notice these drugs in different in, in the same category sort of sound alike in their generic form. So omeprazole and pantoprazole. Uh, it's sort of in the same class of proton pump inhibitor uh, uh, medications used to treat uh, increased acid levels in the stomach. Um, so it it would carry the same side effect profile as the omeprazole would. So you still have to sort of consider that in a patient. And uh, but very again, very effective. A lot of people take that on a PRN base, basis. Some of them that take it for a certain amount of time do have some patients that have to be on that for a long period of time. And we used to, 
you know, this is one of those situations where it was uh, when these medications came out, they were very effective, used a lot. I had a lot of patients that I just said, just take this once a day. Uh, They said, when can I get off of it? I said, well, if you have, you know, if you have symptoms, you keep taking it. And then uh, some of them had been on it for years, and that's when we started to see some of the side effect uh, data coming in and then readjusted that to say, hey, probably for most people this needs to be just as needed or on a short-term basis, i.e. four to six weeks, and then after that period of time, maybe coming off of it. But it is different if you have things that are picked up, like on on the scopes that the GI doctors do, uh, where they find an ulcer or they find other conditions, you know, that might be a reason why you need to stay on it longer. So I would, I would just have that discussion with your physician and say, hey, um, can I come off of this? And don't just assume because they haven't had that conversation that it's okay just to keep on taking it because I'd do the same thing if I'm, you know, hopefully I'm looking through all the medications that my patients have and like, okay, do we need to still be on this or this? What do I, can I take them off of? Uh, sometimes those things are missed because they're looking at other things that are going on with you. But I would just ask those types of questions. Is that, uh, is there another strength of than 40 milligram? And then- yeah. Yeah. I think with off the top of my head, I think they have a 20 milligram. That's another good point too. If you can get away with a lower dose, you minimize the potential, uh, side effects as well. So the lowest dose, you know, necessary would be, be something to think about. But yeah, I think there is a 20 milligram of pantoprazole. Okay. Well, thanks so much. All right, Rick, thank you for calling. Um, and I know everybody's heard me say that a lot. It's, you would think that there would be really hard and fast reasons to treat somebody with something, and um, it would be the same dose. It would be the same dosing regimen. And honestly, we're getting more and more good at precision medicine. In other words, if you have a, uh, a bacterial ear infection, for instance, then you know the dose of the medication needs to be correlated to your weight uh, or doesn't need to be just like one you know dose of it and in thinking about different types of infections what specific antibiotic do we need to use what's the dose and how often do we need to take it and how long do we need to take it and sometimes those are common from patient to patient but there is a lot of variability based on a number of things and again trying to get the desired effect but minimize side effects that's really important in trying to, you know, pick those medications that are going to be best for patients and having those discussions. I, I get it, though. It's very challenging to do that for each and every medication. If you're talking about five to seven medications, it's not common practice for every physician to or even a nurse to go through each one in fine detail through all the side effects. But I think some of the major ones that you see – Certainly, you know, you need to share those. We we need to share those with our patients to make the most informed decisions on that. We're going to go to Dorothy from Ridgeland. Good morning, Dorothy. Yes, I am needing some information on the Don effect of diabetes. Um, I'm getting some okay readings through the day, but I'm always high upon rising and waking up. Yeah. So, I mean, so I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that first part of the question with that. So just 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 some just just a general question about those that variability in what you're getting. Okay, so they termed it dawn effect. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, you know, depending on what medications you take for diabetes, and I'm guessing you have type 2 diabetes. Is this something, do you know that specifically? Borderline. Borderline diabetes. Okay. So, yeah. So that's probably type, type 2 diabetes is usually what we get when we're older. Um, type 1 diabetes tends to affect younger individuals. And type 1 diabetes is always treated with some type of insulin. Type 2 diabetes can be treated with other medications um, and not necessarily with insulin, but sometimes it does require insulin. So if you're in that borderline category um, and you're seeing those fluctuations, it can be very frustrating at different times of the day to see that. And you might have very tight control during some times of the day, but very, uh, you know, elevated readings and particularly in the time period that you talk about. So uh, first thing in the morning, you know, depending on what you're taking, if you're just taking an oral medication, there are some things to titrate. So you might can titrate a, a nighttime dose of, say, if you're taking things like metformin. Uh, but some of the medications are very long acting to help smooth that out. Um, Dorothy, if you don't mind me asking, what medications are you taking right now for diabetes? Okay, so I'm not on any medication. I'm trying to determine at what point that I will have to have the medication. Got it. Do you know what the what your last A1C, hemoglobin A1C level was? Okay, so when I went in, it was at a 7. 11? No, 7. 7. Okay, 7. And and how old are you? Uh, 63. Okay. Yeah, so the the A1C, which you probably know is a three-month average of uh, your glucoses, you know, your blood sugar for the last month, it it's very accurate in sort of predicting that, that general rise. And anything above 6.5 would potentially be something you would treat with medications, although I have a lot of patients that are able to treat their diabetes with modifications to physical activity and diet. Um and are very successful with that. And they start off with A1Cs even much higher than yours. But 7 is really at 63. Um, that's sort of our target, right? So that's even though we would diagnose you with diabetes with an, A1, with an A1C of 6.5 or higher, we, necess- we wouldn't necessarily treat it until it got to 7. So you're right there on the fence. You do have diabetes, but the way we treat it um, at, at a hemoglobin A1C of 7, you can either treat it with diet and exercise or you can treat it with medication. Um, if it got higher than that, that would be the point where I would say, yeah, we probably would need to add something a little bit. But um, And you've probably seen this. On days that you have more physical activity, physical activity is incredibly powerful at, at controlling that blood sugar. And after an activity, even if it's just sort of moderate walking for 30 minutes, you can see the effect for the next hour to two hours of that blood sugar coming down. Um, But if it's you're right, I mean, if it's it's uh, sort of in the morning time that you're seeing that rise in blood sugar, there's not going to be much you can do besides paying attention to what you eat the day before and what activity you had the day before. So that's why it's it's really important to sort of map this out. And um, how are you checking your blood sugar? Do you have one of the uh, continuous monitors, or are you doing that by finger stick? 
Well, now, yes, I have the continuous monitor okay. and, uh, system, monitoring system, and uh, so that was, you know, I I needed to have the information so I can make a decision. Right. And so now I'm getting that those readings, and I'm seeing what's going on. Yeah, I was uh, a lot of, I needed some more information. Let me just place it like, see it like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And those are really good devices that are very accurate and can give you that information that you need to sort of see what's going on. If you haven't, um, if you have the the option and the time and the mobility to do it, I, I would say with a hemoglobin A1C of 7, that's not a dangerous level. And even if you have, may have some spikes up to 200 throughout the day, or maybe even higher every once in a while, it gives you some ideas if you map that out with what was going on at that time and the day before, because that's sort of setting you up. It's not necessarily what's happening right then and there, but it may have been something that you ate differently the night before or your physical activity was different the night before or afternoon before. So that does give you an idea of the effect of it. And if you haven't modified those kinds of things, I'd stick with that that continuous monitor and then maybe add in some of that those changes and see what happens. And it, it can be a really good motivator to show you exactly what works and what doesn't work so well. Absolutely. And so uh, one of the things I'm noticing with uh, any types of grains mm-hmm. or cereal grains and fruit um, sort of getting spiked, how do you handle that? Are we totally eliminating those items? Or? No, not at all. You know, we used to have a uh, years ago, decades ago, it used to be, okay, these are the foods you eat, these are the foods you don't eat. What we know about diabetic treatment now as it relates to nutrition is you can really have a very, very you know, a varied diet that has all kinds of different things in it. It's really the proportions of that and the total amount that you eat. So grains are fine. Better grains are those that release carbohydrates over a longer period of time. So there's something called a glycemic index that you can look up on the Internet or ask for some, you know, some information on uh, by a nutritionist or your, your physician, and they should be able to give you that. But foods that have a lower glycemic index, they may have the same amount of calories and the same amount of carbohydrates in them as other foods that have a higher glycemic index, but it's going to have a much more smooth effect of releasing those over time as you eat them. So like brown rice instead of white rice is better for you. Sweet potatoes uh, versus regular potatoes so are going to be better because of those reasons. So they have tend to have much more fiber in them, and that is important. And you can have fruit. Like fruit is something else you can have. You don't want to just eat fruit all the time, you know, because that's probably going to, that has a lot of carbohydrates in it. But a balanced diet that has lots of fruits and vegetables in it and grains, whole, whole grains, is going to be very helpful for you, not only for diabetes, but for other medical conditions and trying to hold those off as well. So I think this will be my final uh, question. Mm-hmm. So getting up to like uh, 200 during the day, uh, how is yeah. that? Yeah, it's not a danger. I wouldn't say it's a dangerous level. Now, if you told me 300, I'd say, okay, maybe we need to do something. Maybe you need to go on medication at least for a period of time until you get things worked out. If you go up to 200 and it's once or twice a day, it tends to be after a meal, even before a meal in the morning. I, that doesn't 
worry me as much, particularly if you're asymptomatic. If you're not having going to the bathroom a lot more or you're not having other symptoms, um, I, I would feel comfortable with you treating that with diet and exercise right now. Um, I think what you're doing is you're learning about all these fluctuations and what might be contributing to them. Um, if you if you have access to the internet, if you go to the American Diabetic Association's webpage and search for uh, under nutrition or diet, I don't know exactly which one of those to look at, but basically they're going to have some recommendations in there and other resources that you could use to sort of come up with what would work for you. Try that. Try the exercise and uh, and what they they also have those recommendations on that website. Um, for somebody who has diabetes or is at a high risk for diabetes, you want to work up to what's most powerful is 45 minutes to an hour a day, most days of the week. So we're talking five or six days of the week of, of walking. Okay. Um, so if you can do that and maybe add in over time, you know, the next three to six months, some small weight bearing exercises, those are very effective, just as effective as some of the starting medications that we give. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And All right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's a great question, and it certainly allowed us to talk about that a little bit more. You take care, and thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy answering your questions about any kind of health care issue you might be having. Got lots of good questions this morning about Potential drug side effects about diabetes, about osteoporosis, about all kinds of different things. If you have a question, it doesn't have to be along the same topical lines, but if it is, we would love to hear from you. Let's go to Janice from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. Um, I have a comment about uh, the osteo- osteoporosis mm-hmm. uh, issue. I uh, had a friend that was actually still losing bone mass while on medication. Yep. And she, uh, so we started uh, a yoga class. It was one hour a week for seniors, very light yoga. A year later, when she went back to her physician, they took her off the medication she was doing so well. Yeah. Yeah, any kind of load-bearing exercise, and when we say that, a lot of people think, well, I've got to lift weights. That's not true. It is helpful to do that if you can. You want to be careful and make sure your physician authorizes that. But, yeah, we've talked about I didn't talk about it earlier today, but that definitely is part of the total regimen, particularly as you get older. It's extremely important to do things like that, and it can be uh, – that's the way your bones get denser anyway – um, a good example of this is if you take totally healthy people and you stick them on a, a rocket and you shoot them up to the International Space Station and they stay there three, four, six months and they come back down and they've done studies at NASA to show this, they can lose significant amounts of bone density during that time in space. In fact, they have a regimen now uh, when they come back to help address those things. And you need a couple of things to make sure that, that bones get dense. You need substrate, so you need like the bricks and mortar, and that's a um, healthy diet that contains a lot of calcium and vitamin D. 
it's not a bad idea to take that, particularly if you're a woman of childbearing age, to load up now at the earliest uh, you know possible time. Do that over time, and then that load-bearing exercise. So when we stress bones, and that can include those movements that you see in yoga and Pilates and other things that are you know you wouldn't tie, you wouldn't quite consider. Oh, that's that's not load-bearing exercise, but that can help over time to build those up. I think it may have been a couple of weeks ago we talked about even in athletes, you can see these differences like a tennis player in their dominant arm will be about 20% denser, uh, the bones there, the, the radius and ulna, than in the non-dominant arm. So certainly, I'm glad you brought that up, Janice, because exercise is incredibly important with maintaining and rebuilding. I mean, that is the stimulus that the body normally gets to say, okay, you need to Bone up, I guess, is would be the thing that we would say. Uh, but that lays down that bone, and it remodels bone to make it denser to handle those loads. Yeah, it was just amazing to me that it was only one hour a day, a month, yeah. a week that we yeah. did it. And it, so it's such a small amount. But I thought I had sciatica. Mm-hmm. I had something mm-hmm. going on. And, of course, my sciatica left. Yeah. That was my benefit. Her benefit yeah. was her bones and uh and I don't know why but it didn't come back so I must have stretched out whatever the problem was the period of that year yeah and um, well it can also develop muscles that are that stabilize um your spine mm-hmm. where that nerve comes out where your sciatic nerve comes out same thing with yoga too you know you may think okay well this is the effect that I'm getting right then and there but what we don't think about sometimes is yeah we're going once a week that may not have a big effect, but if it changes how well those muscles and your flexibility and your mobility are for the rest of the time, that's the big benefit. Um, so you can get a big bang for your buck of going once, twice a week, and all the other things that a person may not be thinking about what they're doing or able to do, that's the biggest you know, the biggest uh, uh, positive with that. So thanks for bringing that up. And uh, yeah, big advocate for exercise. Doesn't matter what your age is, you can do something. You, I've got plenty of patients, they can't even walk anymore. They're doing some exercises in their chair every day uh, in their office. So it's, uh, I mean, in, in their home. So that is, that is certainly something to, to think about. Let's go to Susan in Memphis. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. I'd like to know what a echocardiogram result of 5.1 is telling me. Hmm. Okay. That number, is it just in isolation or do you, can you give me more info on that? Is that like the aortic valve area or? It's the aortic valve. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Ah, I guess, I guess correctly. Okay. Yeah. So the, an echocardiogram is a very useful tool that's used by cardiologists uh, to measure certain things. And um, usually you would get that if you have a murmur, which is an extra sound in the heart um, that can be from uh, something like a valve that's either leaky or it's stenotic. It's too, too closed. It doesn't open up all the way. Or it could be a problem with the heart itself, like how it's able to function. So it's an ultrasound, basically, that you uh, put the little uh, they put the little lube on your chest and then the wand on there, and basically they can look at the heart as it's beating and blood going through it, and they can also measure blood velocity through it too. So it's really useful, and and for different reasons they they can do that. One of the things that's very useful at measuring different diameters 
in the chambers of the heart and in the valves of the heart. So we have four valves in our heart. Uh, two of those valves, um, they regulate blood flow between the upper two chambers and the lower two chambers. And um, the a, the, that's the aortic ventricular valves, so the AV valves. And then there are the, I'm sorry, not the AV valves, but the, um, the atrial uh, ventricular valves. Um, and then you have two valves, one each, that regulate the blood flow to the lungs from the heart and to the rest of the body from the heart. So the aortic valve is one that prevents backflow after blood leaves your heart and is going to the rest of the body through the main artery, which is the aorta. And it should normally close and prevent backflow into the heart. So if it starts to widen, and there can be various reasons why it's widening, a lot of times that can be associated with hypertension or atherosclerotic disease, then a normal valve area would be less than four centimeters, okay? Um, and uh, if it's if that aortic root gets up above that four centimeter mark, then that could be uh, you know a concern that they they need to monitor that because you may have to have a repair of that area. The danger with it getting too big is that it can put it can cause backflow of blood into your heart and have sort of a volume overload status so that your heart's having to work harder and you're probably you may have some symptoms of uh, lightheadedness when you get up and down, uh, shortness of breath when you're doing activities, um, and just not having a whole lot of energy. But that is a very useful tool to look at that valve area to see how big it's getting. And then if it gets too big, they may have to do a replacement of the valve or even a repair of the aorta with the replacement of the valve. And there are different ways to do that nowadays. You may, you know, they, they may, if, if they have, you know, spoken about it, uh, they may uh, give you some options like not having an open heart surgery, but you may be a candidate to have uh, an intravascular repair, which is basically like having a cardiac catheterization. They go in and they uh, are able to do that through an artery um, in your, usually in your wrist to do the valve okay. replacement. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. If I choose not to have a surgery, time frame, give me a guess. It depends on a yeah yeah it depends on a number of things so it, you could be that way for months or even years or it could be more progressive in nature but they can follow it with a serial echo. There is a point though if you're you know if you develop if it widens too much certainly it could increase your risk of you know of being able to repair that. But yeah, I, it really depends on sort of what's causing what they think is causing it. And then, of course, treating other things that might contribute to it. Like if you have uncontrolled hypertension, hypertension with that, then it's normal not, blood pressure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. I mean, I think I, those are the kinds of questions you definitely need to ask a cardiologist and say, hey, based on this echo, what do you think could happen? And it is a bit more variability with that if you don't treatment treat it than with, say, a valve that's stenotic or closed off at the aorta. That's a little bit more predictable. But um, I would ask them those kinds of questions because we have good data to, to make an informed decision. Okie dokie. Thank you very much. I enjoy your program. Oh, thank you for calling, Susan. We do appreciate it. We're going to go to Maxine. Good morning, Maxine. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Well, I've had two hip replacements about a little over two years ago. And 
when I drive a certain distance, once I get out of my car, my legs feel really heavy. Mm-hmm. And when I sit down on a low bench, like when I go to church, and I sit down on those pews for maybe an hour or so, it's hard for me to get up and down. Why, why my legs are being so heavy? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Let me ask you a question or two first, though. Did it is that something that has since the surgery that has come up, or was it there right after the surgery and it's been there the whole time? No, this is after surgery. Gotcha. So, but I mean, did you get? Is this something that yeah, there was a time period after the surgery that you didn't have this? Um, and, and something that's, or it's been there since after the surgery completely. Well, and that's okay. You may, you you may not can, a lot of times it's hard to remember that, you know, kind of thing and sort of see, but. But the the, the heaviness, what's going on with the heaviness of my legs? I stand up all day long in one, in one spot on my job. Yeah. Because I'm a cashier. Uh Uh-huh. And, and, um. Do you, the heaviness is not related to like uh, numbness in your legs, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing that's the most common is just uh, muscle use that's weak. Okay. And that can be very common after a surgery like that. Now, after a surgery like that, and you, you probably went through this, you went uh, to physical therapy, right? So physical therapy is very good at helping uh, rehab those muscles because chances are if you had two hips replaced, your muscles probably weren't moving too much because you were probably in too much pain or you had a lot of mobility issues, you know, moving around. So um, afterwards, that's why physical therapy is important in trying to get that that strength back and the flexibility back. But over time, that can go away. Um, so even if you had a good result after surgery, that can go away over time. And if it's been two years and you're having this, I get somebody to evaluate you, and I would ask them, hey, can I do physical therapy again? And that could help regain a lot of that mobility so that they're not feeling heavy like that. But they probably need to do a good physical exam just to make sure there's not something else that's. I was trying to tease out to see if there was uh, any symptoms of, um, you know, any symptoms of neurologic problems. But I don't hear those, so I, I think it, the most likely thing might be that you, that just muscle uh, lack of muscle use. Well, I have. I order a QB. Mm-hmm. You know, a little exercising thing. You sit down and just yeah. Uh, so, uh, would that be good for my muscles? It it would be, but probably for only certain muscles. So, a um, one other thing a physical therapist could do is they could test your muscle strength and your flexibility with different muscles. So. Every activity is a little different. So squatting down and getting up out of a chair, you may be able to stand all day long and not have any problems. But when you do certain activities, because it uses different muscles in your hips and legs and even lower back, that might be the problem rather than the other muscles that you use to stand up. Okay. Okay. I, I was... I was thinking on the same path. Yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead and go ahead and contact your physician. And say, hey, I need some physical therapy again. I'd be, I bet they'll be glad to do that. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all for calling and listening. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.